Hey everyone, Frizzer here. So this week's guest is Christopher Morrison from USNC, which is Ultra Safe Nuclear Corporation. It's right there in the name. Uh, and they focus on building essentially nuclear batteries, radioisotopic thermoelectric generators. And this is the same kind of battery that's inside Curiosity and Perseverance and New Horizons and the Voyagers. They're incredibly long lasting. And essentially, you use heat to produce electricity. And what they're proposing is using one of these as a power system for running an ion engine that would allow a very lightweight spacecraft to achieve incredibly high velocities so fast that you could chase down an interstellar asteroid or comet and even return a sample back to Earth. Imagine being able to get a sample of a comet or asteroid that formed in a completely different star system than our own. And that's the possibility. All right, here's the interview. Okay. Uh, in theory, we're live. Uh, hey, everyone, welcome to uh, interview here on my YouTube channel. Uh, today, I'm talking with uh, Christopher Morrison, who works with USNC, we will be getting into the name of that company in a second. Uh, Chris is the, um, I guess the person who wrote the proposal, the person named in the uh, in the recent NIAC award for uh, an interstellar sample return mission. So today we're going to be talking about what it's going to take to chase down uh, an object like Oumuamua or, or uh, Borisov. Not only that, uh, you know, orbit, maybe land, and even return a sample. It's kind of mind-bending to think about the possibilities. So Christopher, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Yeah, I'm excited to tell you guys about the projects I'm working on. Well, first, congratulations on the, the NIAC grant. Uh, every time a new round of NIAC awards comes out, it's sort of, uh, it's like, I don't know, it's like the holidays for me. It's like a birthday present for me. And I sort of look at all the cool proposals and then and then quickly jump on uh, on the, the call and try and interview as many people as I can because they're all such, such cool ideas. What was the, uh, um, I guess, what was the process for, for you to actually kind of uh, get this grant? Yeah, I've, I've proposed several NIACs uh, ever since I, uh, graduate school. I graduated three years ago with my PhD. So even in graduate school, I was submitting some of these and yeah. followed a lot of the, the developments and events. And, you know, it, 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 sometimes it takes a little bit of figuring out exactly what they want. Sometimes it's like, oh, you know, the first one I proposed might not have been the most, the craziest idea. It didn't even get through the screening phase, yeah. kind of phase 1A, where they say, okay, your idea is cool. And then the phase one B is where you have to convince them that you're able to execute on that idea and actually ultimately win a NIAC phase one. So this particular proposal we also submitted last year. It got pretty good feedback, um, but there were some comments. I addressed the comments this year and I'm happy to say that I got the blue color. And I think in the NIAC they have kind of the, the you know, Roy G. Biv rainbow of if you're red, you're not very good. Yeah. You know, green is not, not the like you win, it's the blue, it's the light speed blue kind of, you know, the, the, the right. shit. Well, the funny thing is, I think you, you sort of mentioned it there, it's that balance between um, feasible and crazy. Like, if your idea is too feasible, then they're not super interested in it. If your idea is too crazy, then they're not super interested in it. It's, you've got to strike that balance between an idea that pushes the limits of what is currently done in NASA and space exploration, but also maybe is feasible can actually get accomplished. So, uh, so I, I would love that we can we can get into this. So, uh, so let, let's talk about your proposal. So what's the idea? So the idea is to actually take a, an old technology. So NASA uses plutonium 238. They've been using it since the 1960s. And the reason you pick plutonium 238 is it has a very long half life and a really high power density. And it only emits what are known as alpha particles, which are easy to deal with from a radiation perspective. Sometimes you need a really thick radiation shield for certain types of radiation. But for plutonium, um, you probably don't wanna do it for too long, but you could actually hold one of these in your hand for a very short period of time, assuming it didn't get too hot. But NASA originally looked at a lot of different radioisotopes. They looked at one called polonium 210, strontium-90, cesium-137. 
And they ultimately decided on plutonium as one of the highest performance isotopes. And, you know, they actually looked at one of the ones that I'm, I'm looking at in this NIAC. It's called cobalt 60. It has a very long history. It was used heavily in the medical industry for cancer treatment. They'd get you in a room with some of this cobalt 60 and they had the x-rays that were coming off the cobalt 60 kind of treat your cancer. And it's a known technology. And the reason NASA rejected it was it has a 5.7 year half-life and it emits x-rays. Right. So the half-life is quite short. So fast forward to today, you know, in the past, we've looked at things like um, going to the gravitational uh, lens, uh, 550 AU yep. and further away, right? That's a distance problem and a speed problem. You know, you don't want the mission to take 100 years, so you have to get up to a high speed. But then when you're there, you actually still have to do stuff. But with these extrasolar objects, it's not a distance problem. It's purely a speed problem. So 5.6 years of a half-life is not an issue here. It's something mm. that, hey, you know, all we need to do is get up to speed fast enough, you know, and then come back before it's too far away. And the innovation isn't so much the technology as a combination of the mission, as well as there's one other key piece, which is regulatory, that um, in 2019, if I was a commercial company and I wanted to do space nuclear, I... I didn't have any, I didn't have a framework. I didn't have a regulatory framework. I didn't have anything. There's a government framework, which involved very challenging requirements. But in August, 2019, there was a national security presidential memo number 20. And that particular memo outlined, hey, if there's, there's launch cases for commercial and the FAA is the main regulator or technically the Department of Transportation. And it created a framework where you know, when we first looked at this, we were looking, we're looking at, at, at uh, lunar landers. We were looking at just a couple watt heat sources for lunar landers. And the, the NIAC is kind of the souped up version of our lunar lander technology. And this basically allowed a commercial case where we could pursue this and launch it and have a regulatory environment that still made sure it was very safe, but would allow it. And kind of the combination of that and you know, we have some IP associated with this. We have a specialty. Um, when you make these radioisotopes, the big thing you don't want from a safety perspective is release. If, if any of these radioisotopes get out into the environment, people could breathe them, people could eat them. It, there's a lot of challenges. And what we have as IP is special encapsulation technology that uh, when we actually make this radioisotope battery, it starts out not radioactive. We take it in a lab we produce it, um, we can use, it's, it's actually a very small lab. It, it's, you know, there's a few pieces of equipment. The complex part is we ship these, these to a reactor and the reactor irradiates the, the actual cab battery or the cab unit as we call them. And it makes it radioactive, it activates it. And the way we build the ceramic is it's a two component ceramic. There's an encapsulation ceramic that is non-nuclear and there's a precursor ceramic that when it interacts with neutrons and other, you know, there's other types of radiation, it will turn into the radioisotope we want. And what's cool about this is we, we can selectively pick, we can say, hey, for this mission, to, uh, potentially to an inner extrasolar object, um, we have a, the cobalt 60, but for shorter missions to the moon, we can pick one that, hey, if you're on the moon, you don't necessarily need even five years of operation. You might want, you might want one year. Right. So for that particular application, we're looking at a different isotope that has um, easier X-ray properties. That that the, as I mentioned, the cobalt puts out a lot of X-rays, but this one is very easy. So, so to get back to the original question of you know what is the innovation here? It's it's a bunch of things. It's regulatory. Right. Um, it's it's the technology that we've developed around easily producing these in a nuclear reactor. Um, but it's also just um, that these missions to, you know, before this, why would you want to hunt, you know, like the Oumuma and the Borislav comets really made this this very practical use case for this right. technology. Well, so I want to sort of first talk about this idea of using an, uh, like a plutonium isotope as a 
as a way of powering a propulsion system. So, you know, when we think about radioisotopic thermoelectric generators, you know, the plutonium 238, it's the one that is inside Curiosity and Perseverance and in the Voyagers and and in New Horizons, but it's used, you know, they use a thermocouple to extract the elect, you know, to turn the heat into electricity, which can then power the spacecraft for decades. I mean, we're still communicating with the Voyagers and they're using this, this system. So how do you plan to use this for a propulsion system? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's electric propulsion um, that we're converting. These radioisotopes don't produce electricity. You have to have some way of turning the heat into electricity. And one of the benefits of these radioisotope systems is in all reality, they're just dumb hot rocks. They're simple, <laughs> yeah. predictable. You know, th they're going to produce exactly this much power today, this much power tomorrow, this much power next year. Very predictable. You don't need fancy control systems to control these batteries. And when you use the heat, um, we can go to very high temperatures. Everything we design is designed to withstand re-entry into Earth's atmosphere from a launch accident. So you know, we could potentially go to going to higher temperatures allows us higher efficiency conversion systems. And in space, one of the big issues is your heat rejection. You know, on Earth, we have air and water. And when you want to reject heat for a thermodynamic cycle, it's very easy to reject air and water. But when you're in space, you have only infrared radiation to reject to. And if you don't go to higher temperatures, um, just like on your stove, when, you're, when your pan gets really hot, it might turn a little red, right? That means it's emitting a lot of infrared. Um, and this is a temperature to the fourth power relationship. So if, if I'm at room temperature, I emit a certain amount of radiative heat, radiative infrared heat. If I go to 300 degrees C, I have 16 times more heat that I, you know, T to the fourth. So you're double the temperature you know, and it's, it's basically 16 times more. So you're, if you look at some of NASA's concept missions, uh, such as the GMO, GMO was a, was, was a nuclear electric propulsion using fission power, a slightly different type of fission. Yeah. It almost looks like it's solar powered because they have these big giant radiators everywhere. But in this one, um, we're using high temperature power conversion, um, fairly low efficiency because you know, you get too high of an efficiency. Now you're you're too cold, and your radiators are large. So there's this optimization problem where efficiency isn't the big deal here. What is the big deal is power per unit mass. How much electrical power can you get per unit mass? And you feed that into what are now fairly conventional electric propulsion devices. There's a whole bunch to right. choose like from. Hall effect thrusters and and various uh, ion engines and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and so you would, and so how much, I guess, how much electricity, I mean, GMO is, you know, I was, I was reporting on GMO back in the day, the Jupiter icy moons orbiter that would have used this, as you say, a fission reactor, ion engines, it would be able to go into orbit around each of Jupiter's icy moons, one after the other it was a wonderful, monstrous sort of Battlestar Galactica idea of a, of a spacecraft. Um, what kind of, uh, well, actually, you know what? I want to. I guess let's talk about the about an interstellar object and the kinds of velocities, and then we can use that to sort of figure out what it would take to be able to actually catch up with one. So, so how much of a challenge would it be? A is it to just even catch one and go into orbit and scan it and send data back? But I mean, the part that made my jaw drop on your proposal was a sample return. So, what you know, what kinds of velocities you're dealing with here? Yeah, um, a little bit about the orbital mechanics. The, so a Muamua, um, we have something called a V-infinity, which means the velocity it was going outside of our solar system. When it falls into our solar system, it moves much faster. But the V-infinity is a good, good number to look at because we know the escape velocity to leave the solar system pretty well. And however much excess speed the, the, the object has as it was falling into our solar system is kind of what you add to that escape velocity term. And um, it was moving, I think, about 26 kilometers per second at V infinity, as we call it. When it was in the inner solar system, I think it was about 86 kilometers per second, you know, a lot faster. But Earth also moves around the sun. So Earth is actually moving 30 kilometers per second. So that's why it's not easy to a lot of numbers will report, oh, it was moving this fast. But then you have to take into account we're on a moving object. Right. Around compared to the sun, compared to Neptune, like compared to what? Yeah. yeah. 
So you look at V infinity, you look at how much the escape velocity is from Earth, and then you make some assumptions on how fast you want to catch up to it. Just like um, if you studied high school physics, you know that you know acceleration squared times time uh, or acceleration times time squared over two who is kind of your your position, right? So you can do these really basic uh, like high school physics calculations to tell how fast do I want to catch up, and some of it depends on the angle of the object. If the object's coming in, in in the ecliptic plane, which is where all the planets orbit, or if it's out of the ecliptic plane, and you can do some magic where maybe you do a plane change around Jupiter, or you do a plane change around the sun, you might be able to get some delta V from the planets. And there's actually something called Project Lyra, where yep. they looked at yeah, conventional rockets, and they said, hey, if we had 35 kilometers per second of delta V, we could catch up with Oumuamua in about 15 years. Yeah, I know that even like now, like if you, they say that you could put a tiny little little probe on top of a Falcon 9, launch it in the next year or so, and and still catch Oumuamua if you wanted to, but yeah. not return a sample. Yeah. So so to catch up with one, it, it's on the order of something like 50 kilometers per second at Delta V. Um, to go back, it's roughly about the same. You can you can kill some of that if you fly directly towards Earth and use Earth's atmosphere to slow you down. And one of the things that I mentioned in the proposal is you eject your sample, and it's the, your sample is just on a trajectory to intercept Earth and slow down. But there are limits to how much you can slow down using right. the atmosphere and heating and all that. So, so really, you you know, a hundred a hundred kilometers per second might not even be enough. Everyone, there's some. I, I did kind of a back of the envelope case, and I said. Somewhere between 75 and 150 kilometers per second is what you need to do these these right. sample return type missions. And and there is nothing that has ever had that kind of a delta V. Like nothing. Like I think like Parker Solar Probe is like the most delta V that's ever been generated for a spacecraft, and it's it's not a fraction of what you're looking at. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. <laughs> there's a few. Um, there's the solar sail concept that I think. Um, I think it's Explore and um, Aerospace Corporation are working on. They got a phase three NIAC for that one, and they fly really close to, fairly close to the sun. It's not actually not that close to the sun, but they they use that boost. Um, you get more effectiveness of your propellant if you're deeper in a gravity well type of thing. Um, some physics there. So there's some concepts out there where you could use something like a, a solar sail as in a sun jammer concept. Um, but in the one that I'm talking about, you don't necessarily need to do that. You could fly straight towards the object. Or in reality, you'd probably want to do your plane change around Jupiter and then fly straight towards the object. Um, right. So it, it, there's definitely, it's definitely the, you know, from chemical propulsion, no way, no how. Like this is impossible. For, right. for electric propulsion, though, um, what's really cool is you're, you can pick your ISP. If you want to be 6,000 seconds, 12,000 seconds there's some electric propulsion uh group out there that will get you that but the issue is power that when you the efficiency of your propellant is mass times velocity that's a momentum equation right the power that it takes though is mass times velocity squared over two so your your velocity energy is a square term but your velocity efficiency is a linear term so if you want to get six thousand seconds instead of you know maybe 450 in a chemical well, that's roughly a factor of 12. And now you need 12 to the second power, something like 144 times the amount of energy for that. And that's where energy is, is such a key piece of this, is for electric propulsion to work, is you need a ridiculous amount of energy. If you can get that, the technology for propulsion is here. We can use these electric right. propulsion systems. It's just, how do we get that much energy? So give me an idea then of, of like a... How the mission would unfold in your mind? Like, let's say that that the Louvoir has detected the you know an inbound interstellar object. It is it's on approach. It's on a vector that is that matches the Earth's direction around the sun. It's close to the ecliptic. You could probably make a flyby of Jupiter if you needed to. What would the and and you're already in orbit, ready to go. So what would the sort of mission parameters look like? Absolutely. So what you do is, um, 
as you know, they've, they've been studying, I think the Europeans have a telescope that is being designed specifically to look at these extrasolar objects. And I think as one of your articles said that they estimate there's seven per year yes. works into our solar system. So you're relying a little bit on statistics here that what you would do is you would launch it. And um, one of the unique things about our launches, we are indeed very concerned about safety. And when we launch it, it would include a very heavy shield, um, multiple um, metric tons of, the, of a shield. And this is to protect people on earth and it's any type of launch accident scenario, you know, the rocket blows up, catches on fire, re-enters the atmosphere type of thing. But once you're in a high enough orbit, you can eject this really heavy shield. You no longer need it. It's purely for safety reasons. Um, and when you eject the shield, you only really need a little bit, what we call a cone angle or a shadow shield to protect your electronics. Um, whatever electronics you have, you have a little shield in that direction. And this big giant shield reduces by a factor of maybe 10 in mass. And after you've ejected that shield, you're something like a couple hundred kilogram spacecraft. You know, one of the appeals to this is you mentioned GMO was this Battlestar Galactica-like thing. When when you're at higher power, fission makes sense. When you're at 100 kilowatts, it, it makes sense, and that's because for for a fission system, you need a critical mass. You need a you, you can't have a really small reactor core. Um, it doesn't scale linearly. It's more like once you've achieved a critical mass, you can get whatever power you want out of it um, until it melts down but, or doesn't melt down. But, right. you know, fission reactor is either you, you can control it. You can turn the power up. You can turn the power down. In these batteries, it's purely a statistical decay process. You know, produce this much today, this much tomorrow, this much next week. And it slowly decays with something known as a half-life. And, you know, once you're... Um, when you look at small missions, you know, maybe a couple hundred kilograms, something we could launch relatively quickly on a Falcon Heavy or even a Falcon 9, um, you know, you want to be in these, these couple hundred kilograms ranges because that's, you know, we look at the telecom industry, they put multiple metric ton kind of satellites and geostationary and things like that. So this is what the benefit of this technology gives you is the ability to get much smaller than nuclear electric, than traditional fission kind of electric propulsion um, while still attaining the high delta V. What you lose though is the ability to control the reaction. So you can't turn it on, you can't right. turn it off, it's always on. It's just producing heat, but it's it's simple and simplicity can be very good, yeah. but sometimes it can be challenging as well. And and I you know I, I can definitely sense that the safety issue is is an important consideration that you um, are definitely attempting to address and that's fine, uh, you know I think from our perspective, I mean Perseverance launched with an RTG on board, Curiosity launched, New Horizons. There's going to be probably RTGs going to on the Artemis mission. Um, the that that as you say these are hot rocks that you can you can encase in in protection and if there's an accident the thing just lands with a thud somewhere um you know uh, so so don't worry i like i get it that i get it that 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 safety is is a primary issue and it's fun, you know even back during the cassini launch we had people just absolutely freaking out about about the effect of launching cassini with the rtg and so um uh I'm not concerned about the safety. I'm more interested, you know, not that, you know, I, I let me see. I am comfortable with the safety parameters and feel like that issue has been addressed. And I'm really interested in what is possible with the the actual mission. So I just want to kind of go back to our story here. We've got our spacecraft in orbit waiting for a target it's it's kicked off its shield and now it's down to its minimum its flight weight uh what happens next so you 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 wait for a target and you might preemptively fly towards jupiter right um what you can do is um you're, you're assuming that one's going to come in you might fly preemptively towards jupiter so you can be ready for that plane change maneuver um that you're going to have to do to get into the same plane as the extrasolar object um but you kind of camp out, you wait for the one that you want to go after. And then once you find it, the goal is to find it before it's entered the solar system. So the goal is to, to you know, depending on the object, it might fall in closer or further from the sun. 
you know, Oumuamua came quite close to the sun. I want to say it was in the inner solar system. Forget the exact path, but it, it was quite close. And the goal is potentially if you can get it fast enough, you might not even need to fly towards Jupiter. You can just start speeding up and catch it right in the inner solar system, come grab a sample and fly back to Earth. And that type of mission would only take a couple of years. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's all about the power source too, um, that if you can identify this extrasolar object early enough and you know exactly what you want, you can find it at its point of minimum of approach and this mission could be done in a couple of years. Um, now, that's getting lucky. You kind of won, maybe not quite the lottery, but you won the, the bingo round, you know, right. on that one. Um, but I'm just, I'm, I'm just kind of imagining that you've, you know, you found your target. It's moving inbound into the solar system. It's in a good trajectory. You essentially shoot your mission outward from the solar system on a track that's going to be able to intercept the, the object as it's leaving the solar system again. And so you're thrusting, you say, for like a couple of years and sort of picking up velocity and you're able to match its velocity within a couple of years. I guess that 50 kilometers a second? Yeah, the um, there's numbers quoted in the NIAC of five to eight. Um, we, I use the number kilogram per kilowatt where it's, it's called a specific mass. Some people like to invert that number and say how many watts per kilogram, but I like kilograms per kilowatt. and you know, with this technology, it's completely feasible to be in the realm of a five to seven. And some people will say, hey, like solar is actually, there's a few things out there that are reasonably near term that are at, like, at 10, which is relatively close. But the issue with solar is that's at one AU, right? That's, you know, if you have to fly by Jupiter or something like that, you know, you're, you're not going to get that power density. So Potentially, there could be a solar-powered system that if you everything was perfectly perfect and this object was falling in towards Mercury, you could look at a solar-type system. But with this one, it gives you a lot more flexibility, and especially if you need a plane change. Um, you know, either you, you, you do your plane change around the sun or you do your plane change around Jupiter. So it's, it's a bit more flexible. Um, and I think the, the benefit is just you know, simplicity on this guy. Cause it, right. it's literally a hot rock probably connected to a heat pipe with uh, a thermoelectric segments down it and a radiator. And an ion and engine. There are some complex, the complex parts are actually the, how you do your power modulation and distribution. And right. you, you know, the electrical components are, are, are challenging. And, and because of the x-rays being produced, you will need rad hard hardware. Uh, yeah. for for kind of all those electrical components you have to worry about shielding but but it's it's a quite simple system and um that's that's the benefit of it is you know we we could launch this hopefully on a falcon 9 um and part of the NIAC is um a large part of it is looking at the power conversion system a large part of it is looking at the regulatory implications and a third large part of it is the production that I talk about these isotopes that we're producing in a reactor. And I'm, we know for sure we can get hundreds of watts. Um, the question is, can we scale to much higher power? What would that involve? Right. Um, with, with plutonium, they're kind of limited to 1.5 kilograms a year, which is roughly 1.5 kilowatts per year. And the nice thing about these commercial isotopes is that um, a lot of the issues with plutonium are surrounded around their, their special nuclear material. And there's a lot of issues with when you say the word plutonium, but if you do these other ones, we think we can drive the price down. So, right. so a lot of the work on the NIAC centers around not so much is this real physics, it's more around will they let us do it, right? Right. Well, but I mean, again, the fact that Perseverance, there's, there is now the second nuclear, you know, uh, RTG on the surface of Mars, these regulatory hurdles have been you know, leapt in the past. So it, it feels to me like if, if the prospect here is that, that you can give scientists a sample of another star system, there are benefits to this. Mm -hmm. um, so I just want to go back again. I want to go back to our mission here. Uh, you've caught up with your space. You've caught up with your interstellar object, and I guess you're going to go into orbit. The, mm -hmm. the main spacecraft is the orbiter. What would happen next for you to actually acquire a sample? 
Yeah, so we would have a payload. And I'm that's something where I'm the, you know, if you think of this as Star Trek Enterprise, I'm Scotty. I'm the engineer telling you, oh, I can take the engines, right? right. And I would love to talk to some more Spocks, you know, the science officer that can tell me, you know, here's our plans. Here's, you know, the, the Japanese have done, for example, comet sample returns. The Hayabusa 2, I believe, was yeah. a very recent one. So we would probably bring in um, someone who knows, you know, we will bring in someone who knows a lot more, more about that. And hopefully, you know, the mass of the payload is a big determinant in kind of our system here because, you know, if the payload is is a metric ton, well, that kind of ruins our, our lightweight power system, right? So we, we do need a fairly lightweight sample return. Yeah, I'm sure it would be grams. To make this work. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you, you know, whatever. There would be, you know, some combination of you know the the folks who worked on some of the the Hayabusa landers from from Germany or from from Japan like there'd be a lot of people who have a lot of experience in this or the people who are planning the Phobos sample you know sample return missions etc um they would retrieve a small sample and then how would the spacecraft just would it decelerate or would it like, would it grab the sample and then it would the whole thing return back towards the Earth, or would it send a return? Mm -hmm. Like, would it be like, say, Osiris Rex or or Hayabusa at this point? Yeah, exactly. So you're you're traveling on this extrasolar object and you're moving rapidly out of the solar system. And it, your time, how long it takes to get back to Earth is again because these delta v's are so high, you can almost treat it like that basic physics kinematic equation. You know, at squared over two. And how far it's moved, you know, how much delta V you have to get back to Earth. You know, the more delta V, the faster you can get back to Earth. And it's going to depend on the, the extrasolar object. And I've kind of bound it and said, you know, 100 kilometers per second is what we're targeting. There will be some objects that we won't be able to do a sample return on because it'll be moving too fast. It'll be more in the 150 kilometers per second regime. But there's going to be some proportion, and Uma um, Uma was one of them. If, if, if we had seen it early enough and we could have prepared this, we definitely could have um, intercepted it in this fashion. It was within that regime. And um, Borislav was also in that regime as well that we could do it. But there's probably going to be some that are further out and harder to catch. Um, um, there's, there's even a chance that if someone was really interested in, in intercepting Oumuamua, we could, instead of doing a sample return, we could do a flyby. We have enough delta v that we could pretty quickly catch up to it and do a flyby but i i think it's too far out of the picture now to do an actual sample right yeah um the and so i'm sort of envisioning you're on a trajectory with the interstellar object you're on your way out of the solar system you turn in the opposite direction start to fire the the thruster start to turn that what is a, I guess, a, what a hyperbolic trajectory into something that's more per parabolic that's actually going to, and then eventually you'll reach your, your, the top point of your orbit, and then you'll fall back into the inner, into the inner solar system. And then the mm -hmm. hope is to aim for the earth at that point. Yeah. You... One of the things we'll do is we'll separate out the sample. So a lot of people talk about, you know, if you're flying towards earth, a very radioactive source, right? Um, the goal would be point the spacecraft a bit away from Earth and eject the sample such that, you know, you're, it's ejected. It might have a small little propulsion system on it as well to kind of bring it into Earth's atmosphere and then they can go pick it up, the, you know, maybe in the ocean or in the desert or however, you know, kind of how Hayabusa did it. Um, so, so this idea then, I mean, I think that that tells the whole story of, of this mission, but the idea of matching a, an RTG with a with an ion engine with a with a high performance ion engine i mean th that's i mean that's the most extreme idea for sure like something that seemed like complete science fiction that you could actually chase down one of these objects and bring a sample back home to earth just as if it was like osiris rex or or hayabusa um what are some other missions that have that you've thought of that that would work really well with this kind of a of just an overall thrust performance but with a small relatively small spacecraft yeah so the the challenge is the time um you know for this particular one it's 5.6 years there's another one we're looking at that's closer to 13 year half-life so a voyager mission wouldn't be a good fit here because voyager you want multiple decades plutonium's great do plutonium on, on voyager 
um, potentially Europa, um, that if we can get there fast enough, there's a lot of issues with ice. You know, you melt the ice. There, there's this mission to actually melt through, I think, 10 kilometers of ice down to the to down to the ocean. Um, with they're, they're looking at plutonium for that, which is still a good choice. But I would say that the cobalt one might be a little, it might be a bit cheaper. And the whole mission, you know, if you melt through the ice, I think they're only talking about it taking maybe another year or two. So it's still within that realm of feasible with shorter half-life uh, materials. So potentially there could be some cost savings um, and you could save that plutonium for other missions where you're looking at longer time scale. So and that, and sorry, that's the main advantage of the of the cobalt versus the plutonium is that it's easier to produce. Yeah, it just has this shorter half life. Yeah, I'll say you know plutonium is great, and I'm glad we're producing more of it. And there's definitely things where it still makes all the sense in the world to use that. Um, but I'll say one of the challenges of plutonium is it's very costly. Um, each RTG is on the order of a billion dollars or 400 million. It depends on who you ask. It's, they're, they're, they're a lot of money. It takes time. You can only launch maybe one curiosity style mission um, every four to five years um, at the current production rate of plutonium. So the issue that what I think is would be great is, you know, if if we can come in with a maybe slightly lower performance, or in some cases, it might be equal performance, but just shorter half-life um, material, and then save that plutonium for the other types of missions where you really need it for that long half-life. Right, right. And and so, like, how much of, of those other ones, like, was it cobalt, you said? How, like, how much cobalt-60 is being produced? Mm -hmm. Like, lots? Yes, I mean, yeah, it, um, so my goal is to get it down a lot, and a lot of that depends on the size of the spacecraft and the scaling of the spacecraft. So for this particular one, we're looking at 20 kilowatts electric is what the proposal talked about. I'm probably going to try to lower that a bit. I might say, okay, if we got it down this low. Can we get it to 10? Can we get it to 5? Um, power conversion is maybe 10% efficient or 15% efficient. So you got to multiply that that electric power by a factor of perhaps 10. So, you know, now we're talking about something like 200 kilowatts of thermal power. But the cool thing about cobalt 60 is it's extremely high power density. So plutonium is, is um, 500 uh, watts per kilogram, or what I like to say is half a watt per gram right. is, is kind of in that range. Cobalt-60 can be as high as 17 watts per gram. So it's a factor of 34 times right. theoretical uh, density. Now, in reality, efficiencies and making things, it's not, it never really quite gets to that like high level of extreme, you know, and there's also concerns about um, cooling, right? You got to be able to cool it. So there's, there's obviously ways to, to make sure that you get the heat out in a good way, but um, in terms of just the raw power density at beginning of life, you know, we, let's not talk about half-lives and how plutonium has a much longer half-life. Um, you can get power densities very much on par with that of plutonium. And there's a secondary isotope that, that we're looking at, um, which I can talk more about in the future, but we're probably going to wait a little bit on sure. to yeah. feel that one. That's on par with plutonium, but the benefit of that one is it has a 13-year half-life on that order. So it's a, it's a longer half-life, but, but it's still not nice that split. 87 years you get from plutonium. Is there anything that's sort of in the other end of the spectrum? I mean, have you thought about if you push this to the very limit, like, like imagine we wanted to send an interstellar spacecraft, something, mm -hmm. some small probe out to another star system. And like, if you took a, say a plutonium RTG and just let it accelerate for 87 years, or I guess it would be the half-life. So it would probably be continuing to attempt to accelerate for, for a few hundred years. Do you, do you have any idea? Have you sort of looked into what kinds of, of, I don't know, gulfs could be crossed in reasonable amounts of time with, cause I can just imagine a spacecraft accelerating for, for a hundred years is interesting. Right? Oh, absolutely. Um, there are a few that are on a, on par with about a thousand year half-life. The issue is they're low power density. So you don't get nearly that watts per gram that you get with something else. But if you're looking at an interstellar mission or, um, maybe like, uh, I forget the, 
von Neumann probe, if you've, if you've ever talked about totally. those, yep. those types of things. Um, you know, if you wanted a few watts of power for a thousand years, that's, that's totally doable. With, really? With yeah. So, I mean, so have you done any back of the envelope calculations? Like what would it, what would, what would a thousand years of a few watts pushing a, an ion engine get you in terms of velocity? Yeah, the issue is is um, it's just heavier. It's not as good in watts per gram. So where I see it being useful is you have another propulsion source that gets you up to speed, but to power the electronics, or you know you have to have a camera when you finally do your flyby. In right, years, you gotta have something that powers your 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 camera. So I'll say that the performance for electric propulsion, um, it still could be reasonably good because you're spreading it out. Um, just to speak orders of magnitude. Um, when you look at nuclear energy, it's roughly a million times higher, higher power density than hydrocarbons or um, batteries. And there's a little bit of variance. Maybe one nuclear isotope is 10 times more than another in terms of the stored energy, a total amount of energy in the isotope. But they're all pretty similar. They're all within that range of 10. And so whether you pick plutonium or you pick cobalt or you pick something else, um, they're all very similar energy densities, but what differs is their power density because that half-life, the longer the half-life, the lower the power density. So um, you could potentially get similar delta Vs out of a cobalt one as compared to these other ones that I'm, I'm mentioning. It would just take a much longer period of time um, to do those types of operation. And I think, um, you know, really, I would love if anyone's listening on the show and is looking at interstellar stuff, I would love to, you know, catch up with you. You can look me up on probably LinkedIn is the easiest way to get a hold of me. But so, so have you not done some just back of the envelope calculation to get a sense if this is a, I mean, right now, I mean, back in the day, right, the idea was like a bustard ramjet, but it turns out that there isn't enough hydrogen to scoop in to feed your fusion drive. Ideas for fission drives, but again, um, you know, you just would run out of fuel. And so the sort of the current thinking is it's going to be something like a breakthrough star shot that you're going to zap a tiny little solar sail with a laser and send it on its on its way. Does does a ion engine matched with an RTG and a and a patient um, NASA get you anywhere? Because it seems mm -hmm. I guess to me, it feels very simple. Like, like that's the part that I'm really enjoying about this idea is, is, as you say, it's a, it's a hot rock with a, with a, with a very proven engine bolted on the back and, you know, obviously some heat exchanging engineering problem, you know, you, you'll yeah. sort it out. Um, so I'll, I'll talk, I'll talk. Um, so antimatter is, you know, hundred percent of what you can get out of something, right? Yeah. Um, fusion. There's some reactions that can get you on par with 10% of the mass, right? Fission is closer to 1%, right? Um, but when you get down to radioisotopes, it's usually a little bit less than you can actually get out of fission. Uh, just a little bit, not a lot less. So if you're patient and you can wait thousands of years, yeah. uh, sure, you can do your 100, you know, or maybe 500 kilometers per second. You might be able to push the, bound the boundaries a little bit. Um, but you won't get quite that light speed, kind of a decent fraction of light. You might be able to get 1% or maybe a couple percent of light speed. The, the cool thing about the Breakthrough Starship is, you know, gigawatt scale lasers from Earth, um, that can give you a huge speed boost. And that that's what what really enables that one. Now, what I would think would be cool is you take these, these radioisotope battery type systems and you could then use them to power the electrical power loads and you might you might be able to help slow down or you might be able to control your trajectory that you put in a little tiny electric propulsion system on there and your goal is to make sure that as you get closer to the object you can do a little bit of a course correction maybe right to get there so i, I wouldn't say this would be if you want to get there fast this isn't this isn't necessarily the solution for interstellar but it's complementary to other solutions and uh, if you're patient, if you're someone who's like, I'm talking on a time scale of a thousand years. Well, yeah, sure. It'll work. Uh, Perfect. For a thousand years. Yeah. Um, 
there's a there was a mission called uh, an idea called Project Dragonfly. I don't know if you saw this. Not the Titan Dragonfly, but it's called Project Dragonfly. And and their idea was to try to send something more significant, like a kill. Sorry, like a like a one ton payload to another star system. And so they would accelerate using a laser system, and then they would deploy a a mag sail that would interact with the interstellar medium and slow itself back down to to an, an entry velocity as it approached the the target star so um you know maybe that would be a way to provide electricity for some kind of mag sail that you've deployed to try and slow yourself down so the laser would accelerate you and then the rtg would would help you slow back back down again but it is kind of a fascinating uh conversation um yeah so I would love to take some questions from the audience that people are, are watching now and they've, they've got some questions. Um, Raj Luther asks, so when would the sample return happen? So you talked about a few years, assuming you get like a nice, you know, early detection, how long to rendezvous and how long after that to return? Yeah, so all of them are kind of... Um... If it was absolute best case scenario, it would be a couple of years. Um, if it's, you know, most of the, you know, what would be good is to get a distribution of these objects, you know, after we observe enough of them and say, hey, this is how the average case, this is the worst case, it's the best case. Um, I'll say that, you know, what, what this particular isotope is looking at is it really needs to happen within two half-lives. So um, the propulsion side of things is, you know, maybe 10 years, 15 years at most. Um, now, you might be able to cheat a little bit and say, okay, once I'm leaving my, my extrasolar object, I don't necessarily need a lot of power again because my spacecraft is gonna fly off. I just need to, to, to push off my payload and make sure that the payload has the intercept with Earth type of thing. So you might cheat a little bit, but all of these missions I'm talking about are definitely 15 years or less right? Um, in right. terms of the under propulsion um, stages. I guess that is an interesting key is that the moment you essentially have manufactured the plutonium, the, the clock starts on your, it's not like you can wait and loiter for the perfect target. You're running out of possible energy, essentially just throwing it out into space until you exactly. actually can make the flight. So, so you, you have to sort of it's that it's that balance you you may wait yeah. and the spacecraft may run out of power before a good target is, has been made but but if you do find the ideal target and it is on that right trajectory maybe you could go the cobalt route as opposed to the plutonium route if you could do that shorter time frame that's interesting um yeah. uh Hal McKinney is asking, could an interstellar object be so magnetic that it might pose a danger to your spacecraft? Do you think any kind of magnetism would cause an issue? Um, it would, there might be some weird environmental effects. I wouldn't think it would. Um, a lot of times it's a, for a magnet to affect you, you have to have a material such as iron um, or nickel or cobalt, I think are the, the three. And I think there's another one, but um, a lot of times spacecraft are made out of for example, tungsten, if I put a magnet next to tungsten, just like aluminum, if I put a magnet next to aluminum, a lot of times it doesn't do anything because they're not ferromagnetic. So there might be weird things about objects. A big one could be a debris cloud if you're flying into something that's um, really messy or you're, um, you know, maybe, maybe there could be um, a spin that could be really challenging that you get there and all of a sudden, and this thing's spinning fairly quickly and you know how right. do you land on it if it's spinning and that that could that could really mess up the mission but magnetics i i think we're generally all right on, on that that's that's interesting i mean we know that omomo was rotating really rapidly and probably would have been impossible to try to to dock with you could stay in orbit and, and study it but to actually dock <laughs> Can you, would you, do you envision NASA? I mean, I know it's still sort of in the NIAC, just, just in the NIAC grant stage. Um, do you, would you imagine it being like just an orbiter first and then to go sample return as the, as the second version, as the advanced version of the spacecraft? I think that's how it would probably yeah. roll out. 
I think so. I, there's definitely interest in flying by Oumuamua because of how weird the object was and um, definitely some speculation on its origins. Um, yes. Which I won't comment too much on, but I'll, I'll say that there's an, there probably is an appetite for a flyby. Uh, because it's so far away, that one would still probably be, you know, the clock is ticking very much um, intercepting that one. And you, you talked about Project Lyra, I think, or you, know, yeah. you mentioned it. Um, they were talking about if you had 35 kilometers per second at Delta V, you could, you could fly by it in 15 years or something to that effect. Um, so that one is definitely on the table, and it might actually simplify the system a lot. Um, because you might be able to go with a 50 kilometers per second system as opposed to 100 kilometers per second. As you know, the rocket equation is exponentially hard, not yeah, not linearly hard. Yeah, the um, tyranny of the rocket equation. <laughs> so, yeah. So that so so perhaps a split then. The Project Lyra says we could stick a traditional tiny rocket probe on top of a Falcon Heavy, launch it as quickly as possible, and as you say, get to Oumuamua within 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, like the clock is ticking on just how quickly it's getting away from us. But if you could do some kind of hybrid approach, take your 200 kilogram spacecraft, put it on top of the Falcon 9, Falcon Heavy, use your Jupiter slingshot, you could you could cut the flight times down pretty significantly, couldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we if we can get, you know, with with chemical propulsion, it, it's all about your mass fraction. And to get thirty five kilometers per second at Delta V, it is it, it's not easy. It's definitely would be think of like a mini mini stage rocket. You know, um, with with New Horizons, for example, it had kind of a, a multi stage standard rocket, and then it had another kick stage. That was a solid rocket propellant, um, and I think it got a record-breaking was it 16 kilometers per second or something like that leaving Earth. I'll have to remember the exact numbers, and of course, I'm not. I think when when it left Earth's sphere of influence, um, it had like a 16 kilometer per second kick on it, which doesn't necessarily include the ground rocket because to get into orbit, you have to have that. I'd have to look at the numbers again. So sorry, which which mission was that? The New Horizons. I think New Horizons holds the record. Yeah, yeah, and they did a flyby of Jupiter as well. I think they had an 11, like the escape velocity from the Earth is, let's see, it's like 42, it's like 18 from Earth. And I think they had had 11, I think, leaving Earth and then got a, a flyby of Jupiter that kicked them above escape velocity. I forget the exact, don't quote me on that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely the planets help you. Like potentially, we could still use the planets on the on this particular project. You know, Jupiter is especially, um, but it would eliminate the weird. In some of the Project Lyra, they're like, we'll do uh, Mars, Venus, Earth, Earth, <laughs> Jupiter, like fly right. around every. It's like the Grand Tour before right. you finally get one shot out, and that takes a lot of time. Whereas this, I would say, it's probably worth flying around Jupiter, but after that, a straight shot. So. Um, it could definitely be some kind of hybrid mission where if you want to get a kickstart, the slowest part of a mission is always the beginning with electric propulsion because you have so much propellant that your your acceleration is low. At the end of the mission, you have used up almost all your propellant. And so your acceleration for the same same thrust is, is much higher. So if you get a kick stage, if you're able to launch on a larger rocket, um, a standard chemical rocket or as a third stage or you know, for, you know some kind of vehicle, you could get an instantaneous maybe six, seven, maybe 10 even kilometers per second of delta V. And that would give you a boost during the most important, slowest time for your electric propulsion. Um, I like to draw out the little charts of, um, you know, it's like instantaneous acceleration. A lot of people don't like electric propulsion because it's so slow. And that's because it takes time to get up the speed. It, with a normal rocket, you can get up to speed instantly. And if you can get up to speed instantly, you've traveled much further distance in the same amount of time with the same amount of delta V. So a lot of people are like, oh, electric propulsion delta V isn't nearly as good as as uh, you know the delta V of a, of a rocket. So yeah, doing a, doing a combined mission where you would do that kick from Earth to get you starting to speed up and then would go would definitely be beneficial for this type of mission. Yeah, that's it's really interesting. I mean, 
I mean, we all think even Omomo and Borisov are are on their way and gone, and we lost our chance. But still, I mean, if if people were willing to work quickly and and put their technologies together, a mission to one of these would would be possible. Um, we've got just a, a couple of minutes left. How? does the future play out now for with your NIAC grant? So what's what's sort of your next to do item? What do you have to do? And what what can we expect to see in the future? Yeah, I'm going to put in a short plug for my company. because I, I need to. Um, so I work for uh, USMC Tech, which is Ultra Safe Nuclear Corporation Dash Technologies, which might sound like a weird name, but we do take safety very seriously. And the parent company is just USMC. USNC is deploying small reactors for the Canadian Arctic. Um, we're working specifically looking at there's places where they ship diesel shipments up in Canada for multi-billions of dollars. And the Canadian government said, hey, let's get some clean energy up there. So the main company is working on that. And USNC Tech is a nuclear technology company that is looking at more advanced applications. And a lot of them involve space. And with this particular technology, it's, it's called a chargeable atomic battery or a CAP is what we call them. And what's really cool about it is we started working on this for deployment on a lunar lander that if you're in a permanently shadowed region or mm -hmm. if you're even just a day night cycle, your batteries, normal batteries, you have to use most of the power in those batteries to heat the batteries because the heat is the issue. If your battery gets cold, you no longer have electricity. So our first product, which we're hoping to roll out in the, in the you know, next couple of years type of time frame, is just a few watts of thermal power to help these, these lunar devices survive. And the NIAC is a sportier version of it that, that's saying this, this is using this technology, taking it the next step, but it's not out of reason. And really, you know, the next step with this is, is we're hoping to do a ground demonstration in the nearest future. And the ground demonstration is very low power. It's not the NIAC high power, high, much higher power one. But, you know, it hopefully will snowball that we have a technology that's not just, you know, the NIAC is the really cool, like, hey, we can do that. And then we have these near-term low-hanging fruits as we build up, you know, eventually looking at more um, advanced higher power on, on the way up to something like the NIAC. Um, actually achieving it. And I, I think we have a very good technology demo that we, we can do it in the next few years and then build up. You mentioned Project Lyra. You know, I think their time frame is they're looking at a 2027 launch period. And I think I'm, I'm completely thinking that if we can prove out the basics and get it up to TR level five, TR level six, that opens the door to actually maybe flying this in the late 2020s, maybe early 2030s. Um, if we wanted to do an Oumuamua um, intercept, or not necessarily intercept, but a flyby, um, or as the Europeans get their resources more online for looking at these um, interstellar objects and find more of them, just kind of doing the mission where we can prove, hey, statistically, one's going to appear here, let's wait for yeah. it and launch it. So I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about this because we have, we believe in the technology so much that as a company, we're putting our own money into this. The NIAC isn't just this, this right. pot of money that's all we have. We're actually developing this on our own. And we see kind of a, a strong future, not just for this, but also leading up to the higher power kind of human scale fission power systems that you'll need to do kind of lunar and, and Martian exploration. Well, people always say, like, why don't we just, uh, I think uh, H7 Apollo in the chat is saying, as long as we agree, the best solution for fission power byproduct waste is to jet jettison into space. So, you know, people always say, why don't we just send our nuclear waste into space? And you're saying, exactly, let's just use it as a propulsion system. For the for this particular technology, um, there's a few nice things about it. One is there's something known as a half-life. So after this amount of time, it produced half as much power. So for these batteries, after 10 half-lives, you've decreased by a factor of a thousand. After 20 half-lives, you decrease by a factor of a million. So for going back to cobalt was 5.6 years. Multiply that by 10. After 50 years, you're one one thousand. After 100 years, you're one one million. Like this is not doing anything to pollute space, right? It's basically zero radioactivity. No, no, for sure. But the point being, you're yeah. you're taking your your nuclear as if you're taking nuclear oh, yeah. waste, and you're and you're you are literally firing it off into space, and then yeah, using well, it as one a, man's as a... nuclear waste is another man's power. Space. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what this is is um, 
there's there's some caveats in that we're not using spent nuclear fuel for this. We're we're using targets, but yeah, this is exactly what it is. And another little tidbit fact I like to tell people is in, in every home you have a smoke detector, and in every smoke detector you have about um, you have several microcuries of americium two forty one, which is a radioisotope, and it's actually one that the Europeans are looking at as an alternative to plutonium right now. So everyone, you know. Your smoke detector is actually in your home. And the future yeah. is maybe not on Earth, but if you're going to start a Martian colony or a lunar base, whatever, why not have one of these in every home, right? Yeah. You know, have your, you know, there's already already so many other things. If you don't get your balance of, say, nitrogen to oxygen, right, you'll die. So what's another, like, right. possible threat in, in your home in Mars, right? Yeah. Well, Christopher, congratulations on on the NIAC Award and all the technologies that, that you're working on. I I really hope that it does make that shift and, and climb the technology readiness ladder to the point that uh, that NASA does consider uh, bolting this on to some of their, their future missions. It could... Uh, I mean, attaching some kind of nuclear system to an ion engine is is a wonderful idea, and I think uh, this is a really nice, simple way to approach it. So, uh, so good luck, and please keep us posted as you as you develop the this into a, an actual prototype. Will do. All right. Thanks thank, for the interview. Appreciate thank, it. Thank you so much. Take care. Now, stop the stream. Uh, all right. Thank you, everybody, for watching today. Uh, we've got a couple more interviews coming very quickly in the next couple of days. So, so you will uh, you're going to see a lot more of this, uh, more many more of these NIAC NIAC awards. So, all right, stay tuned. All right, thanks, everyone. We'll see you later.